The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deek speaking. Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and my guest this week is host of a Four Finger Discount, but I prefer to call him the Sultan of Cinema, the Pharaoh of the Flicks, the Baron of the Blu-rays. Guy Davis, welcome back to Fofop. I am feeling completely overwhelmed, just verklempt, one might say, with, uh, with all those compliments. Thank you, Charlie. It's very nice to be here again, talking movies with... Oh, I wish I could come up with uh, suitable. Well, a guy who um, used to work in a video store would be the most accurate <laughs> description. <laughs> Nowhere near your expert level. In fact, I love talking to you. You always give me such a great insight into the films that we discuss. And this week, um, again, guy comes up with the topic. I say yes. <laughs> That's my level of contribution <laughs> to the planning of these shows. Um, but we wanted to talk about, well, let, I'll let you introduce. We're going to talk about flops, but there's a specific kind of flop you want to talk about. That is correct. Uh, I want to talk about flops that you love starring, yeah, starring your favourite actors. Yeah. Because usually you have a bit of a soft spot for a a certain performer and, you know, you'll turn over, you'll hand over your hard earned for just about anything they do and, you know, invariably going to be disappointed. No one's got a 100% hit rate, unless, of course, they're Charlie Claus. (laughs) But but I was, uh, I think it was actually on Christmas Day while I was wrapping presents I thought, what's something I can have on the background? It's kind of nice. It's kind of mellow. And I don't have to pay too much attention to it. And I found Meet Joe Black. Right. The 1998 three-hour existential romantic comedy drama, Smorgasbord, starring Mr. Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, the uh, what's, what's the essential, what's the basic plot breakdown of, uh, uh, so, of Meet Joe well, Black. He's like the, yeah. the Grim Reaper, right? And he, he is, yeah, he's, he's death in human form. Yeah. Or de- death taking the human form of Brad Pitt after Brad Pitt gets... Yeah, it's that kind of... It's that... Ragdolled by the, <laughs> oh, yes. the worst uh, hit-and-run scene. I would say... The, when I say the worst, I mean the best. I would say most people... Hit-and-run scene. Yeah, if you're not familiar with Meet Joe Black, you are familiar with the, the, the gif or the meme, which is, you know, a very blonde and handsome Brad Pitt getting absolutely annihilated at an intersection. Which, I mean, I saw Joe Black when on video when it came out in the late 90s, and I have absolutely zero memory of it to the point where I didn't even remember that scene. I don't know why it didn't capture my imagination back then. But that's well, the two things that stick out in my mind is one is uh, that him getting hit by the car, and the other is this is peak Claire Fulani. This is where she is an absolute smoke show where if you were a supernatural being like death, you'd probably give it all up just for a date with Claire Fulani. My God, like. Uh, Martin Brest is a, is a great director, but whoever was the cinematography just knew how to shoot her. She's a very beautiful woman, um, but I don't yeah. think I've seen her look as movie star and as gorgeous. In fact, in a in a just world, this would have been you know the the start of much bigger things for her because she's a great actress. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't even realize she's English because she does such a flawless yeah. American accent. But yeah, this this was a film where it's like you got the two hottest people going around, Brad Pitt and Claire Fulani, but. It just, like you say, it's very, very slow. It is indeed. Now, I came up with a theory about that as well, because I think when most, a lot of people talk about Meet Joe Black, and not a lot of people do, in <laughs> all honesty, it's like, oh my God, this goes for three hours and really not much happens. But the theme of the movie is, you know, well, the plot of the movie is, is death has taken the form of Brad Pitt and basically requisitioned Anthony Hopkins, who's essentially playing Rupert Murdoch in this, say, you're near death. I can, I'm about to take you away you know, to the end of all things. But you seem like a guy who lives life pretty well, not just because you've got a Manhattan penthouse and a, mm. and a state in the Hamptons and all that, but you seem like someone who is pretty savvy about life. I'd like to spend a few days with you and you know, get an understanding of what life is all about. So they spend a bit of time together and... I was realising, okay, well, the reason they're stretching this story out so much is that neither of them wants it to end, mm. you know. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins wants to stay alive. Brad Pitt has kind of gotten used to 
being swanning human. around Manhattan looking like Brad Pitt and canoodling with, as we say, peak Claire Falani. Mm. So um, <laughs> why, why not uh, spend three hours doing that as opposed to, you know, 100 minutes? But you're right. I mean, I was looking at it going, yeah, trim this here, tighten this up here, subplot not exactly necessary. But then, I don't know, the more I've watched it, the more I'm like, I actually don't mind spending time with these people. I mean, it's got Jeffrey Tambor in it. Yeah. I think this was just prior to Arrested Development, maybe around the same time he was uh, Hank Kingsley on the Larry Sanders show. And he's doing a really good job. And well, Marsha Gay Harden is in it, and she's fantastic. But um, at the same time, this was not a well-received movie. <laughs> no, it, it's funny. It's one of those films, too, where, like, I'm just looking at the movie poster now on IMDb. And you know Brad Pitt is a good-looking man when, like, it's a romantic mm. pose. It's a photo of him and Claire Folani, like, cheek to cheek. He's in a tuxedo. It's good. And she's in virtual black darkness. <laughs> they, yeah. And all the focus is on him. He's beautifully illuminated. And it's amazing. Like, Claire Folani, any actress, for, for that matter, must have to think twice when it's like, well, I'm going to be playing Brad Pitt's love interest. There's a good chance the camera may, I may, I may never get a close-up. I was thinking about that because... You know, Pitt's 90s, as you say, is just incredibly, incredibly handsome. Mm. And if you're going to be casting you know, a, a woman alongside him as his love interest or his partner or whatever, yeah, you've really got your work cut out <laughs> for you. But luckily, the casting agents were doing a pretty good job. Yeah. I mean, given uh, Legends of the Fall has got uh, what young Julia Ormond in it, and I just had this massive crush on her back in the early, in the mid 90s. I thought, oh, yeah. well, you know, I know the ladies are coming to see Brad with his shirt off being and his long, long hair and everything yeah. like that. But uh, I'm like, who was this Julia Armand lady? And then, as you said about Claire Filani, yeah. you've got young Gwyneth Paltrow opposite him in Seven. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, it's it's a long movie. Its message is a little muddled. Um, not all the performances are on the same page. This might be the yeah. the stage where Martin Brest starts to fall off a little bit. And this guy, we're talking about a guy who had Midnight Run on his resume, Beverly Hills Cop, Scent of a Woman, which not a lot of which. Opinions vary on that one, but, you know, it got Pacino as Oscar, and I think it was pretty well received. So, but this one is like, this guy might be a little self-indulgent, or occasionally he, he his, his tone's a little off. Yeah, I mean, this is a film all about tone as well, though. Like, I actually, uh, this is going to seem like a long bow to draw, but I just saw The Batman over the weekend, which I thought was fine. I didn't, I didn't love it or think it was like hmm. a redefinition of, of cinema. Um, but I, what I sort of have appreciated about that film since seeing it, because I didn't love it at the first, you know, uh, walking out of the cinema, but then I was like, oh, but it does have a tone. Like it really is about establishing yeah. a mood and a tone, and that's really what it's all about. And I feel like in a romantic sense, you know, or an um, existential sense, that's what Meet Joe Black is trying to do is – because there's so much pretty window dressing and it is beautifully shot and, you know, and pretty well acted. I will say that – I think Brad Pitt is miscast. Well, not miscast. I think he does a, an okay job. Yeah. But this, to me, seems like the role that Johnny Depp in the late 90s would have smashed. He would have done it so much oh. quirkier and so much weirder, and it would have been so much more entertaining. I think Brad does an okay job, but he's not quite at that level yet. Yeah, it's funny. I, I wanted to talk to you about acting because you know a fair bit about it. <laughs> Clearly you've never seen me <laughs> but, do it. <laughs> but it's it's a thing with young actors. I'm not sure if I've talked about this with you in the past, but there's a stage that young actors go through, and particularly young handsome actors, where they have to work really, really hard, almost against their looks. 100%, yeah. To show, look, I've got acting bona fides. I'm credible, I'm credible here. Mm. You know, and Depp did it with Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood and all that yeah, kind of Robert stuff. Robert Pattinson did it prior to Batman. Absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, he he came up in Twilight and was like, oh, okay, so Pretty he's just boy. a twinkly vampire boy. So he then does things like the Rover, which I think he's really good in the Rover. But you can see he's like, you can see the seams in it. Mm. He's really working hard to show. No, I'm giving me. And Pitt did that as well. I mean, he did it in Twelve Monkeys, yeah. especially, and he does it here as well. You know, he's he's trying a bit too hard to sort of be still waters run deep. Yeah. There's but a, he hasn't quite got there yet, and he didn't really get there to like Ocean's Eleven it, when he could just relax and realise, I'm a good-looking guy who can act. It's okay to be that. Yeah. I mean, and, when, and when you do that, 
the audience will sort of come to you. It, it kind of and, reminds me a little bit of, I mean, there is that kind of still waters thing, but there's the, the childhood innocence, you know, around like, you know, after he has his first kiss or whatever. It reminds me a lot of yeah. Jeff Bridges and Starman. Yeah, but Jeff Bridges yeah. and, and I mean Starman, and that's also, kind of the, that's kind of the gold standard. Yeah, of that of that kind of also thing, isn't it? young handsome dude when he made that film, but the commitment to being almost like mentally impaired as Starman. Yeah, like and it's, I'll tell you, it's I'll tell you who's really good at that. There's no there's no van, there's no vanity in that performance. Where I still felt like that Brad was make wanting to make sure he was getting the right angles and that the line. I was think right, so. You know? Yeah. Well, I think I think Martin Bress and maybe the producers of the film realised we've got a three-hour movie about life and death here. Yeah, it's not exactly going to you know pack him in on a Saturday night unless <laughs> Brad Pitt looks like a god who's come to earth. Yeah. Um. But but going back to what you were saying about about uh, Bridges and Starman, I'll tell you who's really good at that is Ryan Gosling. Oh yeah. I've rewatched Drive not long ago. Yeah, yeah. And he is actively working against making you like him mm. in that. Yeah. I actually, it's yeah. funny, I, I think I misunderstood Gosling for a while because um, he did sort of a run of films where he was playing that kind of stoic character. It was like mm. Place Between the Pines, Drive, and then even like the new yeah. Blade Runner. And I yeah. actually forgot. First Man as well, especially. Yes. And I was like, oh, God, like he's not actually doing anything. Like he's just he's just being stoic. And, you know, but then I actually forgot. Like he, he can do it. Like you watch um, Blue Valentine. And yeah. he's incredible in that, and incredible range. And then you, you know, um, then uh, you watch the nice guys, the and nice he's guys, hilarious. and he's hilarious. So it's just like, oh man, this motherfucker can do it all. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Damn it, man! Well, a film that I want to talk about that was definitely a flop, um, and the actor that it starred that I love is more of a character. It's Idiocracy, which um, I don't know how you discovered it, but I discovered it when video stores were still a thing. I've yeah. always loved Mike Judge. I mean, Mike Judge's his entire cinematic career could be a series of films that have done terribly with great <laughs> actors that I love. I mean, you know, even Extract, I think, has got, got its moments. You know, Office Space is, is clearly a classic and has been appreciated. And I think Idiocracy was one of those films like Office Space where it was – I mean, it was ahead of its time. When you think that it came out oh, in – What am I looking at this? 2008? 2006, it came out. Yeah. Um, and the actor in it, like Luke Wilson is fine, you know, Dak Shepard, sure, whatever. But it's Terry Crews. This is where I became ah. a fan <laughs> of Terry Crews. Uh, Terry Crews, who people might know from Brooklyn 911. Um, is it Brooklyn 991? 991. Thank you. And the uh, the uh, the brute ads. But Terry Crews plays uh, President Camacho, ex-porn star slash WWF. <laughs> wrestler uh now you know harley riding machine gun firing president who wears like a james <laughs> brown wig now at the time you know what mike judge was saying was like look if uh, uh re you know smart people don't reproduce because they realize that there are finite resources that means dumb people are going to keep reproducing so in three thousand years you know this is a place we're going to end up with this fucking buffoonish man as the uh, president of the united <laughs> states and fuck man he was like 10 years Ten years prescient. Yeah, it's incredible how yeah, it's sort of ahead of the curve he was in that regard. I mean, I've got you know minor issues with Idiocracy because it's one of those things where you have to sort of look at okay, what's the the main idea as opposed to the way it's being presented? Because I'm like, if all these people are so dumb, then how are they all still alive? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, is a dumb doctor going to keep you alive? That yeah. kind of stuff. So every. <laughs> <laughs> I hate I mean, it when I think like that, but it's like, okay, just suspension of disbelief, guy. Just put logic to one side for a moment. Enjoy the ride. I mean, Justin Long. Enjoy what he's saying as opposed to what he's saying. Justin Long as the dumb doctor. I mean, there's so many great little um, little cameos in this. And Justin Long is <laughs> the, the dope-smoking <laughs> teenage doctor. He's like, oh, your shit's all <laughs> fucked up. Uh, just like, it's just... It's just filled with these great kind of like little character um, character actors and mm. moments. But Terry Crews is, is by far the standard. Luke Wilson's job in this film and pretty much his career is to be the straight man who's like, what? What? You know, like yeah. every situation unfolds. And I've got, I've got a lot of respect for guys like that as well who aren't necessarily overflowing with charisma. Yeah. But they're affable and likable and just interesting enough that you'll go along for the ride with them. You'll be their, yeah, they'll be your surrogate. Yeah. I'll be your surrogate for this film. Hi, my name's Luke Wilson. Yeah, he's very good at a surrogate. And I love it. Yeah, and occasionally every once in a while you'll see that there's 
a little more to them or they've got a bit more in the skill set. Yeah. You know, you look at him in Bottle Rocket or, or relative, well, anything he does with Wes yeah. Anderson. I mean, his performance as Richie Tannenbaum is kind of like, are you the hero of this movie? Are you the one that I relate to most in this mm. movie? Because the whole bit with the Elliot Smith song playing, I mean, yeah. viewers know what I'm talking yeah. about, which is, oh, hot damn. So, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's not the, the star of this one. Yeah, Terry Crews is the star of this one. Yeah. And he just does such an incredible just job. Steals just steals really scene. sort of grabs the movie by the scruff of the neck and says, you're a Terry Crews yeah, man Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I like, think before that I'd seen him, the only other thing I'd seen him in was um, the remake of The Whole Nine, whole nine Yards. Oh, no, is that what, no, which was what's the one? Um, no, the longest yard. Sorry, oh, the, the the remake oh, of the longest yeah, yeah, yard yeah. with Adam Sandler, and he plays. I think his character's name is literally Cheeseburger because he can get anyone in the prison <laughs> McDonald's. And again, it's another one of those instances in which he has like three scenes, but he just does not waste a second. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's what he's really good at. I've never seen him play a lead role, and I don't know. Like, if that's where he is best used. He's a bit like the Hulk in the Avengers. Just, like, have Terry Crews yeah. come in, tear up a scene, and get out real quick. There are some people who just have sort of so much presence and so much charisma, but of a certain kind that's like, I can't watch a whole movie with you. Yeah, it's it's like a dinner that's all dessert. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, it's really interesting. I don't know if it came out at roughly the same time, but there's a movie called Gamer. Uh, a Gerard Butler Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Is, is that he's yeah, like an the, avatar or something like that? A real-life avatar? Yeah, it's like live-action video games, except that you're, you're controlling the players via some uh, weird neural link kind of deal. Gerard yeah. Butler's the hero. It's it's a good movie. I mean, well, it's not a good movie, <laughs> but it's a good movie, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, Butler's the hero. And Terry Crews comes in for like maybe four scenes as this – absolute psycho that they brought in to try and take out Butler. And you see you see uh, Terry Crews and a bunch of things, and he's like, you seem like a, an affable, gentle giant type. I mean, maybe the wrong dude to mess with, but, you know, someone who wouldn't mess with you unless you mess with him. He comes and listens, just like, hey, I just killed this guy. Look, I've got all his blood on my hands. <laughs> and, you know, he's got this huge scar around his neck because someone's clearly tried to hang him and just failed. It's like, oh my god, this this man is absolutely terrifying. What's that great line? There's a great line in With Nell and I where um, I think Paul McGann is tripping. Oh, no, no, no. Richard Grant is reading about um, the Olympic uh, guy who abuses steroids or something. He goes, imagine the size of his balls. Imagine getting into a fight with the fucker. It's like, oh god, imagine getting into a fight with the fucker. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what Terry Crews reminds me of. Yeah, yeah, no, he, I would love to see like someone redeploy him at some point. Like, I, th I think you could get someone like a, like a Tarantino, like it has to be a, like a top flight director mm. or, or a David Fincher. And just like you say, because he's so physically imposing, I think he was an, he played football for a while. He's got that NFL physique. Yeah. I I think he was NFL, actually. But yeah. if you'd re redeploy him kind of like the way they use Michael J. White, you know, how he's always kind of like like a gangster or a, mm. or a mentor or, you know, something like that. But yeah. like redeploy Terry Crews with no jokes and just see if you can – because he's got so much presence. Absolutely. I mean, I think you should be throwing uh, Crews some of the roles that The Rock has been getting, like Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about, like, I think The Rock's just created his <laughs> own, like, that's its own subset of movies, right? There's just rock movies now. Pretty much, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know how many of them are all that good. So <laughs> I've kind of sold my stock in, in uh, Dwayne Johnson and I've shifted it over to Jason Momoa. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Always bet on Momoa. All right. What's your <laughs> next uh, uh, flop? Uh, well, I'm talking about really fun movies today, clearly, because uh, my next one stars George Clooney. Uh, it is Solaris, the 2002 remake or re-adaptation of the, I'm not going to try and butcher this uh, Russian author's name, Stanislaw Lem novel, but it was uh, made into a film in the late 60s, early 70s by the great Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. And sort of that one's widely regarded as a bit of a cerebral classic. Mm. One that you really shouldn't touch again, but uh, the dream team of James Cameron and Steven Soderbergh, who put these two in the room together, I don't know. But Cameron was the producer, and um, apparently he said he handpicked Steven Soderbergh to remake it. So I, uh, so I I haven't seen Solaris. I just watched the trailer before we jumped on. 
And to me, it looks like a highbrow feature-length version, a highbrow dramatic feature-length version of an episode of Red Dwarf. (laughs) 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 Is that what's going on? (laughs) The, The gist of it is you have a space mission that has gone to explore this planet, but really sort of looks more like mist and whatever, the, the, name, the name Solaris. The crew of this space station that's orbiting it, this scientific crew, are experiencing weird phenomena that they can't quite come to grips with. So they send up this uh, psychologist played by George Clooney to suss out what's happening with the remainder of the crew and what's happening with this planet Solaris. What it does, Solaris is essentially a living being, despite being a planet. It can read your mind, read your thoughts, read your emotions and manifest the things that you're thinking about. That's the Red Dwarf. So in, that's the Red Dwarf part of it for me. <laughs> See, I've never watched an episode of Red Dwarf. So. Oh, right. Okay, yes. Okay. Well, that, that, that reference would have gone oh. completely over here, but that's 90% of what the episodes are yeah. like. They go to a planet where there's some kind of like pseudo-scientific, uh, science fiction-y premise, like, <laughs> you know, there's aliens there that can fulfill your every desire, but they're actually giant slugs that want to eat your brains and stuff like oh, that. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe Solaris would have caught on a bit more with uh, with audience if that had been the case. <laughs> but what happens is Clooney um, spends a, the first night that he's on the space station. He's visited by his uh, his former wife, who actually committed suicide a few years earlier, and she's manifesting herself as her memories of him. Right. Or sorry, his memories she, of her. She, sorry. So she's manifesting sometimes his memories like, of her. Right. Yeah, yeah, his memories of yeah. it. So sometimes she comes back and is like, well, this is what we were like when we first met. And I was, it was all lovey-dovey. And then it's like, well, th- now she's come back as, well, why don't you love me anymore? Or, and, that, and various other reasons. So he's coming to terms with this great love of his life that he lost through reasons of hers and reasons of his. So it's not exactly action-packed. It's a bit, <laughs> it might be a good companion piece with me, Joe Bark, in that regard. Yeah. Although this clocks in at a relatively brisk 90-something minutes. Um, and, yeah, this was not well-received when it came out in 2002, and Clooney was riding high at this stage. He's coming off the perfect storm, Ocean's Eleven, pretty much regarded as, you know, new king of Hollywood. And what does he do? He cashes in his chips to make <laughs> this uh, cerebral science fiction movie with his buddy Soderbergh that... I've forgotten the name of the actual rating system that does it it might be movie phone or movie score or something like that Mm. but people would come out of a screening and say i rate this movie a d or an f this got an f very few movies get an f but they're invariably really good movies that do like uh killing me soft killing them softly that brad pitt yeah yeah, and dominic got an f and a few others did as well so movies that aren't for everyone shall we say invariably get the f and solaris was one of them i really dig it uh i really love it i mean it it's a simple story, but just told so economically, so it's very lean in the in the best sort of Soderbergh kind of way. I mean, I'm a big, big Steven Soderbergh fan, and he's he's never a guy who sort of overegs the pudding too much. Yeah, Looking- he knows exactly how much to how much to put in in every in almost every way. I mean, I think the most the flashiest he gets is either with a bit of tricky chronology, like he does in Out of Sight. Or a bit of visual color coding, like he does in traffic. Yeah, but essentially he trusts his material and he trusts his actors. And it's interesting because his first choice for this was Daniel Day Lewis, arguably the best actor on the planet right now. Mm. Daniel Day Lewis is like, mm, not for me. And Clooney puts his hand and says, maybe the guy from ER could do it, <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't doesn't um, disgrace himself. Oh, he, in any way, he's, he's an, he's an same- underrated actor, George Clooney. Like he's actually very, very good. It's it's what he's got the it's the Brad Pitt thing as well. Too handsome for his own good. Mm. People underrate, you know, what he's actually capable of. Yeah, and I think he he's very adept at either taking direction or taking notes. Because you know, he became a star in ER, and he had his ticks and his TV sort of head wobble bits of business that he was doing. Yeah, the head wobble the head and all wobble. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was Steven Spielberg who said, if you stop tilting your head, you could be a movie star. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just finished, I was rereading this book called um, Rebels on the Backlot, which is about like this crew of filmmakers who came up in the 90s, like Fincher, Soderbergh's one of them, uh, Spike Jones, Quentin Tarantino, David O. And David O. Russell's one of them. There's a whole big thing about uh, Three Kings, the movie he made with Clooney, and how 
David O. Russell just being an absolute prick to him and you know trying to punch the TV actor literally punch the TV actor sort of ticks out of him. Oh my god! And Clooney, to his credit, you know, sort of recognizes, yeah, I do this, I do this, I do this, and keep an eye on me because I want to get those out of my system. And he eventually did. Yeah. And he's he's terrifically still in Solaris. He's not he's not charming at all, but he's very, very charismatic. And it helps that he's surrounded by great actors like um, Natasha McElhone, especially Viola Davis. This is a, one of the first times that I recall seeing her and thinking, holy shit, who is this actor? Because she is just knocking it out of the park with every swing. It's funny seeing, um, in the trailer, seeing George Clooney in a spacesuit, which we saw as well in Gravity. God, he looks mm. like Buzz Lightyear. Like, if they were to do, I know <laughs> yeah. they're doing the Chris Evans uh, uh, animated one, but if they were to oh, do a live-action yeah. Buzz Lightyear, he looks exactly like him. Did you ever watch 30 Rock? Yes. Yeah. You know how um, Liz Lemon always said that her dream boyfriend was astronaut Mike Dexter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> I remember writing my review of Gravity saying, he's, he's basically playing astronaut okay, Mike Dexter. Okay, my next flop uh, is a... Rare flop for this director. It's Death Proof by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, mm. Now, look, in when you rank Tarantino films, most people put Death Proof down the bottom. I think you know around the hateful eight. But I, I certainly did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, I, and, and, I, and I, and I totally <laughs> understand it. And it was, it does sort of feel like the kind of film that would have gotten made in the eighties when everyone was on coke. Like it's sort of just like. <laughs> Hey, you know what's a cool subgenre? It's like Grindhouse. Why don't we make Grindhouse films and we can get big stars in? And But what I just love about this film is just the – it's kind of the car worship. It's the it's, – it's a real – and when you ever hear you talk about Tarantino – when you hear – sorry, when you hear Tarantino talk about Australian films, one of the things he loves most about Australian films is the way that we can cram a car chase into any, <laughs> <Yeah>. any genre <laughs> or storyline. He said, you know it's an Australian film because at some point there's a car chase. And it feels like this is his homage to like, you know, an Australian exploitation film. Um, you know, there was – I know that the role of the barman that Tarantino plays in Death Proof was originally meant to be played by John Jarrett, um, uh, who oh, – Yeah, real. so Tarantino was a huge John Jarrett fan because of The Dark Age, that crocodile film, not Rogue, the, the one he made in the, in the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and after Wolf Creek and John Jarrett sort of blew up again, um, Tarantino uh, was very excited to get him out. Um, to Hollywood and and I know that John had a meeting with him and Tarantino said I've written his role for you you're going to be playing a barman and, and that to me makes sense because Austin from what people tell me like Austin Texas is very sort of Australian and it's culture like a barbecues and all this kind of stuff and so I don't know why I might be it might be a long boat to draw but it, uh, to me it feels like a kind of an Australian it's got like a, an Australian feel to it I think it's just mainly the Mad Max kind of muscle cars um, but the actor that it stars that I love is of course uh, Sir Kurt Russell <laughs> Lord, Lord Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell. and I don't know maybe you can tell me this guy but it sort of feels that this was the start of people starting to appreciate Kurt Russell again I know he's always been a star but he sort of did go through kind of a lean period towards the late 90s early 2000s where he sort of fell off the radar a bit and I think it's sort of Sometimes it takes a director like a Tarantino to re-anoint someone and say, hey, this guy is really good. Do you feel that happened with Death Proof? I think so, yeah. I mean, that, well, that's kind of Tarantino's raison d'etre, isn't it? That he really likes resurrecting people. And fun fact, may not contain actual fun, but I think his the first choice for Stuntman Mike was actually Mickey Rourke. That's I think right. Mickey Rourke was actually cast. Yeah. Uh, and then... Pulled out for Mickey Rourke reasons, or <laughs> probably competing in the Royal Rumble, <laughs> but or something I, like that. Yeah, and and look, as much as I love Mickey Rourke, I think the, you're right. This is 100 percent Kurt because it's yeah, it's got the the charm, but it's also got the underlying darkness that Russell can really tap into. Yeah, um, yeah, and they coexist so well. And then you know, and also Kurt's kind of fearless, yeah, as well because I mean he is absolutely not afraid to turn stuntman Mike into this absolute wimp. Yeah. You know, the the minute he catches a bullet in the arm, he starts screaming. Yeah, which is hilarious. Yeah, but Russell's had that really interesting career where he's been there forever. Yeah, and it's hard pressed. Yeah, be hard pressed to find someone who dislikes him or dislikes his work. Yeah, but yeah, never quite cracked the A list. Although there was a period, I think in the late nineties, when and it might have been post this movie Breakdown. 
Did yeah, break down. That one? Yeah, the, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, just a fantastic tight little B thriller. Yeah. When it was like, yeah, I think people are coming to see movies because of Kurt Russell, and then he made a few where he actually, you know, collected some really decent paychecks and all that kind of thing. But again, then it was like, okay, yeah, we had our share of Kurt for a while, and he sort of fell off. And but I think Deathproof was the one where it really kind of stuck, and you know, he's reached that elder statesman kind of period of his career as like. Yeah. You know, let's just let's just bring him in. You know, he's you know he's not going to disappoint. We can slot him into just about anything. Well, he's managed if, he's managed if, to get to this stage of his career without having to do an Expendables. You know what I mean? Like, like James yeah. Gunn casts him in Guardians two, and it's like, oh, there there it is. Like, there's the coronation. Like, it, there there's the acknowledgement. Yeah. And I think it's also of a generation too. Like, you know how everyone loves John Carpenter now. Like, you know, yeah. since the sort of reboot of the Halloween films and, you know, it's probably starting with It Follows. Like now every director references John Carter, uh, John Carter, John Carpenter as being their, their <laughs> favourite director. And so I think that's sort of part of it as well is like that generation of kids that grew up watching Carpenter films like you and I are now in, are in charge of the films and so they can cast who they want. And so, you know, actors like, you know, Kurt Russell are getting their, their sort of marquee moments again. Yeah, I think you're always going to have in a moment where if you know if you've got some degree of talent or charisma and you haven't managed to piss everybody off, there'll be some stage where you reach the and Kurt Russell as the president yeah. kind of thing. That's where you are in the billing or on the poster. Yeah, that's why that's yeah. and and you've hit the nail on the head. That's why it'll never happen for Steven Seagal because he's pissed everyone off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean. Look, say what you like about Mel Gibson. I mean, I don't think he's I don't think he's gonna reach that stage. Certainly not in maybe mainstream movies anymore. But he's sort of popping up in B movies and anything oh, and a whole bunch of things I like that. It would but, not surprise me if he if he gets another crack at it. He's too big a star. Mm. Like something I give it ten years, he'll be back. They'll cast him <laughs> or something. But I mean, yeah. Even just popping him in the um the Fast and Furious movies is like the exposition device. Mm. Like okay. Team Diesel, this is what you've got to do this time. Yeah. You know. oh, fuck, I completely forgot it's, he was in the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there you go. Muscle yeah. earner for him. Doesn't have to do Absolutely. shit. Probably gets a nice paycheck because big, big studio film. He's smart. And still married to Goldie Horn, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know if it was an Instagram story or something on Twitter or whatever, but they bring it up every year when it's Kurt Russell's birthday. Goldie Horn took footage of them. They're at some winery or some vineyard in Hawaii. Mm. And Kurt Russell's just sort of in like a, a mambo shirt, <laughs> jeans and thongs, and he's like, it's my birthday. We're going to go drink some wine. <laughs> you know, it's just like your dad. Yeah. And you, you, you know, and if you've got a good relationship with your dad, you're like, oh. I wish Kurt Russell was my dad. dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but no, Death Proof, a, a really, really good performance. And I think you're right. Just uh, one that reminds you, it's like, yeah, this guy's capable of a lot. He can do pretty much anything. He's he's funny. He's charming. He's fearless. Yeah. He's possibly evil, and yeah, he got the well, uh, the seal of approval of Quentin Tarantino, who's the guy who sort of plucks people out of nowhere and says, "This guy's pretty cool. You should be paying attention." But he, he did he did two things in this film, or like his character had two attributes that most big stars would not go near. And one is absolute misogynist. You know, loves mm. uh, brutalizing and harassing women. You wouldn't find many stars of his level that would be at that age willing to take that role on. And then the yeah. other side is, like you said, becomes a wimp. So he's playing the two most negative characteristics. One is a, an out-and-out misogynist and the other one is an absolute yeah. wimp. And he plays both of them. And I mean, that is, that is quite fearless. Yeah, and he's playing them full throttle as well. And, I mean, I think if you had Mickey Rourke in this, yeah, he wouldn't. you would probably go, oh, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, which – Maybe would even work better for the film. Yeah, but because uh, the fun thing about about Death Proof being part of this grindhouse double feature that um, Tarantino made with Robert Rodriguez, you look at Death Proof and it's like, yeah, this is actually what a grindhouse movie was like. Yeah. It had, you know, twenty minutes of great, great stunt work. <laughs> And, and 70 minutes of people talking because yeah. they blew all the budget on the stuff. Oh, actually, that reminds me. It also, and I think it's really hard to do, it has one of the sexiest strip routines in which no clothes take off, are taken off. Absolutely, yeah. I've forgotten that actress's name. Um, um, got it. Oh, no, I've closed that window down. Uh, yeah, she's... Uh, 
she was on the she's she was on a CSI Julia for a while. Fox. <laughs> yeah, that, she got market corrected by Julia yeah. Fox. Hang on, let me look it up. Uh, her name is Vanessa Felito. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't seen much of her lately. No, no. I mean, and she really is the star of that. You know, of that, of that, of that first half. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of so bizarre too. Like when the Zoe Bell storyline picks up, and like it's so weird. You know, the fact the fact that Tarantino can get away with making this film with studio money where he's basically like, oh, I really like this stunt woman. I think she's really cool. I'm just going to fucking like tailor an entire like half a, half a movie around her. <laughs> like it makes yeah. no sense. And she's and like, God bless Zoe Bell. She's no actress. Like you really she, have to she's push very, through She's very scenes. charming yeah. and she's clearly game for anything, not just the physical stuff, but you, know, you can tell that she is giving her all yeah. as, a, as a performer, even if it's, it lacks finesse, it's still like, you're kind of charming. Yeah. You can you? see why yeah. he he likes her, but it's like it doesn't it doesn't translate. Like it's part of you is just like no. let's just get through this like character character establishing scene. So then <laughs> just get on the car and do your stunts. Let's let's see that. Yeah. And what you mentioned earlier about Tarantino liking um, uh, Australian car movies, that whole thing where she's doing the what do they call uh, it? The sailors? Sailor, yeah, what is it? I can't remember. Sailor Sailor and the Martin. Nice. The Masthead or something like yeah. that. But it, that's essentially an homage to the Aussie exploitation movie Fair Game. Oh, right. Yes. Where uh, um, this uh, conservationist, uh, this female conservationist living out in the bush is harassed and terrorised by this uh, gang of uh, hunters from the city and they lash her to the um, the front of their monster truck and just drive through the bush. Tarantino, in that great documentary, Knock on Hollywood, says, am I actually watching this? Am I having like an acid trip? Did someone actually Ship's convince mask. this actress to do this and put it on camera? Because it's so insane. Yeah, that's right. It's called Ship's Mask. The game is called Ship's, Ship's Mask. Ship's Mask, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. What is your next flop, Guy Davis? Uh, my next flop is a movie that I simply adore and people have come to love it over the years, over the 30-something years since it's released. But when it came out, it was like, oh, geez, another flop for Tom Hanks. <laughs> I don't know. We, we loved him guy. in big, but yeah. he is making some terrible, <laughs> terrible choices. This was not a terrible choice. This was Joe versus the Volcano, and it's a bona fide stone-cold motherfucking classic. This is another film that has eluded me. I think that... When it came out, I was probably so. Was it eighty nine or ninety? When did it come? Nineteen ninety. This is about ninety. Yeah, I think. yeah. So yeah. I think I saw it and was like, oh, I don't want to see a romantic comedy with the guy from Big. And then the trailer has Meg Ryan <laughs> doing all these like wigs and funny voices. I was like, oh, I'm not, not. I don't want to see this. I want to see T two again. Absolutely. Well, look, it, it feels like a Wes Anderson movie before while Wes, while Wes Anderson was still in short pants. Right. It's it's a bit twee, or it can come across as a bit twee. And a bit precious, and a bit sort of full of itself. Um, now I have to admit, I was pretty stoned the first time I saw it, and one of the my, one of my first marijuana experiences, shall we say? So that may have you know enhanced my viewing experience slash appreciation of Joe versus the volcano. But I've watched it a lot of times since then. Sometimes enhanced, most of the time not. It's like. This is such a good movie. This is well, great pedigree. I mean, John Patrick Shanley, who wrote Moonstruck. One. Yeah, he's fresh off the uh, winning the Oscar for Moonstruck, and yeah, they gave him the, uh, the the keys of the king. They said, "Oh, okay, you wrote this. Feel free to direct it as and well." Keen eye for casting because he obviously cast Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks pre Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. So, like, yeah. I mean, all the elements are there. Why do you think it flopped? I think for those reasons that it is it's essentially a fairy tale, or it sort of builds itself as a fairy mm. tale. But what? Yeah. So, the, what's the, the plot? The, the story of Joe vs. the Volcano is our, our hero is uh, Joe Banks, played by Mr. Hanks. He is... Weird mullet. He, weird, fluffy. With a, like, Michael Keaton had one at the same time. It was weird, fluffy head, fluffy mullet that those guys had in the late yeah, 80s. Yeah, not, not a good look, but he's in, not in a good place as, the, uh, as our story begins. Joe was formerly a fireman, but I think he's suffering PTSD or had some form of PTSD before we actually knew what it was, and he's now resigned himself to working a very shitty nine-to-five job. It's kind of like the marketing guy for this medical supply company. He's in the basement office, got a terrible, terrible boss. The coffee is awful. Fluorescent lights are blinking on and off. And he just feels terrible all the time, feels sick all the time. Then a doctor tells him um, that he's got something called a brain cloud that will 
you know, one day his brain is just going to stop working. Not going to feel any pain, but he'll just drop dead like that. He's got maybe six weeks left to live. An eccentric billionaire comes along and says, I've got a proposition for you. There's an island in the South Pacific. It's the one place where I can get the, uh, the mineral that has made my fortune. The natives won't give it up to me unless I give them a human sacrifice to jump into their volcano. I'm willing to give you all the money in the world to live life like a king for the next six weeks if at the end you travel to this, uh, this island and jump in the volcano for me. Joe, uh, Joe's reaction? Yeah, why not? <laughs> so he travels, uh, well, he has a, adventures in New York and LA with two women, uh, both played by Meg Ryan. In as he said, in various wigs. One, she's a very dowdy sort of brunette, uh, the secretary at the uh, the company that he used to work for. They go out on a date, and he's you know, oh, I'm full of life, but I'm going to die in six weeks. Uh, you're going to die, and she takes off. <laughs> he moves to LA. He uh, meets Meg Ryan in a curly red wig. She's sort of a pretentious artiste type. He's not coming on quite as strong. She comes on a bit stronger and he's like, no. But uh, And then finally gets on the boat. It's captained by Meg Ryan, looking like Meg Ryan. <laughs> they fall in love very quickly, but very genuinely because Hanks and Ryan just got tremendous chemistry. They've only been in three movies together, but we kind of think of them as, the, as Spencer exactly. Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. I mean, you kind of forget yeah, sometimes yeah. that it was Billy Crystal and not Tom Hanks and When Harry Met Sally. Sometimes you do that. That's right. Yeah. Thing. And as much as I've loved Billy Crystal in, in When Harry Met Sally, I'd be like, Hanks would have what killed Hanks that. Hanks would have been like in that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, sorry, I've, I've, got, I've sort of gone on no. about the story a bit, but there's a fair bit of story in it. Yeah. It's a- but essentially it's about... And this sounds terribly new agey, and forgive me for sounding like a wanker, but it's about sort of becoming who you are and also being your own hero. Right. Yeah. So, and, um, yeah, that's essentially what it's about, but it goes about it in a very, as I said, fairy tale-ish kind of fashion. It's achingly sincere. Mm. It doesn't have its tongue in its cheek at all. Do you think it would have, so, it would have been better marketed or better done instead of a studio tentpole as an art house flick? I reckon so, but at the same time, Shanley directing it really makes the most of, of the money that he's got. And I don't think it's a huge budget of movie. It was probably like a mid-budget movie. Right, back when they made mid-budget movies. Back when they made mid-budget movies that uh, <laughs> that were sold solely on the fact that, you like Tom Hanks, right? Want to come see him in this? Might be good. And so, but, um, what, and what's the rationale? Like, Meg Ryan is not noted for being like a chameleon actress. Why is she doing her clumps? thing here where she's playing that's a real yeah. is, is there a reason behind it is there like a kind of textual reason or is there a just a a, a creative reason why that that's I, th- the pl- I, I think the movie just saw that joe has a, a type clearly but and he's sort of edging towards it he's edging towards the perfect person for him right. um and all these women have sort of points of commonality, but also large points of difference. And he finally, it, it sounds a bit naff to say he finally finds the one that's right for him. But Ryan is also looking for something as well. She's also looking for someone to share this great adventure of life with. And she finds a kindred spirit and a like mind and a, and a, a soulmate right. in Joe. It's, uh, it's really very lovely. And it sort of works on all counts for me or, or works on across the board for me. I, I think one of the times we've spoken, Charlie, I've said about how, again, we're bringing up Mr. Tarantino, but he said, you know, if you're going to watch, yeah, we're going to watch this movie and hopefully you'll like it because if you don't, it's not really going to go anywhere for us. Uh, I think I was seeing my, my partner, the lovely Louise, for about a year or so before he's like, what are we going to watch tonight? Mm. I said, There's this movie I really dig. It's not for everyone, but... I don't know. I'd like to show it to you, and and she ended up appreciating it. So that was a, <laughs> that was pretty nice. I'm still we're still seeing each other. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you can thank John Patrick Shanley for your happy relationship. Indeed, but uh, yeah, but Meg Ryan actually could have, sort of kills it in the because it, it's a bit of an actor's dream, really, having these three separate parts, three very distinct characters that allow you to be different physically, um, try on different voices different attitudes and all that kind of stuff. So she's just as pivotal to the success of Joe vs. the Volcano as Hanks is. And honestly, this is the first time, maybe not the first time that I saw Hanks and realised this guy can actually act and he's not just, uh, you know, 
a charming comedian type. I mean, in Big, I think anyone who saw Big realised, no, he can actually do stuff. Yeah. But looking at him in this is like, oh, no, this guy's an actual actor. Yeah. You know, he does stuff and it's really kind of... Well, I think for most people... Moving and heartbreaking. It was Philadelphia that's like, oh, my God, like, you know, this guy's actually got chops. But you're right. It's it's There, there are little seeds of it in all his earlier works. It's kind of like, mm. you know, before Bruce Willis became an action hero when he was David Addison, you know, you're like, yeah. oh, he's just a funny, you know, quippy kind of like Ryan Reynolds type guy. But then you sort of yeah. see, oh, no, he's got gravitas. Like, you know, if you give this guy a bit more to chew on, he'll do right. And then he'll do director video films for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, although, I don't know, have you heard the sort of the stories about that? That um, why he does it? Because he works yeah. for a day and a half and gets like $3 million well, or something? <laughs> well, the thing of it is apparently, and look, this is all speculation and rumour and hearsay, but apparently he's, well, there were stories that he's got like early onset um, Alzheimer's. Oh. And like his memory's completely shot and, you know, he's being fed lines through a... Um, through an earpiece and all that. Oh, that's tragic. I didn't know. I've never yeah, heard Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean... Those rumours are sort of gathering pace and uh, I think there was a, a video essay recently or like a, a review where someone was talking about these director video movies that are really just god awful. Yeah. I mean, I've watched one or two and was like, yeah, these aren't even entertaining crap. They're just crap. Well, um, and, and yeah, in the comment section below that, it's like, yeah, I worked on a couple of these movies that they filmed in Georgia or, yeah. or Atlanta or whatever. And it's like, yeah, he's there for a day. He doesn't interact with anyone. He's being fed all his lines. And, yeah, he really sort of can't remember stuff. Oh, God, that's so, tragic. No, not Bruno. Yeah. Not Bruno. I know, I know, I know. It's really, really sad because, yeah, people of our vintage who grew up with Moonlighting and Die Hard and that run in the 90s, you know, with Pop Fiction and 12 Monkeys Six and Cent. Six Sense and Armageddon and all that. It's like, yeah, if you give this guy a shot, something with a bit of meat on the bone, he can actually pull off some really good stuff. And... Uh, and yeah, Hanks did that as well. Oh, yeah, pretty much from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, okay, uh, my next flop is a film that I completely understand. It's uh, People uh, uh, routinely slam this as being one of the worst exponents of a superhero uh, movie. But uh, uh, for full transparency, uh, when I first got into comic books as a little kid, The Phantom was the uh, first comic book I was ever given. Uh. I had a family friend give me, I think, close to 600 issues that I – I, oh I remember God. I sold like, and they're almost mint condition, like down into the, like the the low three hundreds. I think they're into like the they must be up into four thousands by now. But back in those days, I actually had early run uh, Phantom comic books, which I, uh, I I sold for thirty bucks on the trading post when I was oh my God, fourteen. Thirty bucks for the bunch. I know. I remember this fucking middle aged nerd came around, and he was he just couldn't believe <laughs> the like, titles the they had, and he was just like, "Yeah, I'm going to fucking take this kid." And oh, look, all I wanted to do was um, buy a Game Boy. So <laughs> I, uh, I, that was that was me selling the cow for some magic beans. Um, but yes, the Phantom uh, made in 1996. This is sort of so. Uh, Batman. Filmed in Queensland, I believe. It was by Simon Winsor, uh, who directed Farlap mm. and The Light Horseman. Um, the Phantom, though, was off the back of – so Batman 89 hits. It's sort of like the – at that, that stage, the high watermark for superhero films, at least in terms of what they yeah. can do in the box office. But people seem to take the wrong lessons from Batman, which if they'd taken the right lessons, it's like, hey, why don't you find a good visionary director, match them mm. with some material and see what happens. Instead, everyone tried to make Batman. <laughs> so you had like the shadow with Alec Baldwin and all these kind of like just misunderstanding. Yeah. You know. Well, that's the thing. I don't think they could either get the rights or they didn't have the budgets or whatever to actually go after all the DC and Marvel characters, so and, they were sort of searching around for and let's be honest, for old, like, old pulp heroes. Yeah, and it also it's probably fortunate because they also special effects were not at the level where you could do a Spider Man yet. You know, it was coming mm. a few years later. So uh, the the Phantom was made, and the Phantom, uh, if you um, if you're a fan of kind of that old school like movie serial uh, pulpy kind of entertainment, it's it's kind of part Indiana Jones. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, he's a uh, the Phantom is comes from a long line. A sailor was washed for those who came in late, as the comic begins. <laughs> Previously on the Phantom, uh, a man is washed up um, on a remote African 
um, shore somewhere. And so they never quite say where it is, but I believe it's somewhere in Africa. Um, and he it was that period where you could just say the deepest, deepest darkest dungeon. Jungle. That's right. And uh, he uh, uh, become became the first phantom as a protector of this, you know, this tribe and and, and parts of, of the jungle, uh, friend to man and beast. And uh, each subsequent uh, child of the phantom would would maintain the mantle until he grew to mythic proportions as the ghost who walks. So this film picks up. Um, they make the decision, like Indiana Jones, to set it in the late 30s. Um, and Billy Zane stars as the Phantom. Now, Billy Zane is not the actor I love, but having having rewatched <laughs> this recently, it's baffling to me that he did not become a bigger star. Like he looks like a young Marlon Brando. He can he, he can clearly act. He knows how to do kind of like, you know, um, uh, like, you know, the, the Tales from the Crypt movies, the, you know, sort of silly, over-the-top, hammy stuff. But he's also a really good dramatic actor. He's awesome in Tombstone. Mm. He's only got like three scenes in that. Yet Titanic comes along. He plays a big villain. You think that would do it for him. The Phantom, lead role in the superhero. It just doesn't happen for him. Why do you think that is? I'm really – yeah, it is definitely the curious case of Billy Zane because – as Hansel said in Zoolander, listen to your friend Billy Zane. <laughs> He's a He's cool, a cool dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's astonishing that he never really sort of took off or caught on in that way. I mean, it may be that thing we were talking about earlier where he's so good looking that he felt the need to sort of put a lampshade on every role and sort of, you know, turn it up to 11 just a bit. I don't think he does that here. And maybe that's almost to his detriment. Well, that's the one thing he's- I'd say about him. He absolutely nails the tone of this film. Like, I think some actors, when they're doing a superhero but, film, like, they take it too seriously. But he goes for out-and-out out kind of, you know, Adam West Batman, you know, hands on the hips, uh, you know, saying noble things. But there's a real nod and a wink to the audience and to the camera. Like, yeah. you get the sense that this is all fun. And it's like, because the premise is so ridiculous. His costume, he looks like a giant fucking raisin. You know, this <laughs> head-to-toe Well, maybe he got color. it right. And maybe the people surrounding him got it right. But, and I say this is all due respect to Simon Windsor, maybe, yeah, he was the wrong guy for it. You needed someone, you needed a Sam Raimi. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that's yeah. that's a good call. Because the... The way it's directed and it's very perfunctory. It's almost like the way, um, you know, not to to damn another director, but Martin Campbell is a real great workman like director. You mm. know, he's reliable, but there's but this needed a bit more, like you say, of that of that vision, like that Sam Raimi kind of quirkiness. It's all so silly. Um, I think so. I mean, Martin Campbell. Well, to my mind, Martin Campbell directed one of the great action adventure movies of the last half century when he did Mask of Zorro. Yeah. That's one that is one of my favorites and he he absolutely nailed the tone for that perfectly. But then everyone is on board. Yeah, yeah. For that one. And everyone got everyone gets it just right. Banderas Hopkins, Catherine Zeta Jones, who's also in the fantasy. Also in the fantasy. Um yeah, but I get the feeling, yeah, this needed something a little more as you said, Adam West Batman. Yeah. And it's funny because I think the last two choices for this role, for the title role of the Phantom was Zane and Bruce Campbell. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I think I read that in, in Campbell's autobiography or something, or some well, article about the Phantom. I remember being but, a kid. I was because I was actually such a Phantom nerd. I was I was a member of the Phantom um, fan club. Did you get a ring? Um, I, did you ring? I got sent the ring. Um, There's also yeah. a secret um, signal we had to do, like a Freemason signal, if we met other Phantom <laughs> members, which was you open your uh, your index finger and your middle finger and you hold it sideways over one of your eyes. I think it's your right eye to signal that you're a, you're oh. in the Phantom fan club, but. Um, there was always letters in uh, the le- in the back of the comic of fantasy casting for the Phantom because there actually was a TV se- or a movie serial made in the forties that you could order on VHS, okay. which I did, and it was like that classic thing of it like. Um, uh, uh, George was it George Reeves who played Superman in the Black and White, mm. where it's just like it's that kind of nineteen forties dad bod superhero. It's like <laughs> yeah. you know, he's squeak- and the fa- the Phantom. Um- Suit, shall we say, is not, not forgiving. Like, yeah, I mean, this guy has not been doing push-ups. The the, the guy playing it, and it's incredibly <laughs> slow and obviously terribly. The, the, he's the ghost who walks because he cannot run. Yeah, and it's <laughs> but it's also incredibly, incredibly like culturally insensitive and racist in parts. You know, I mean, I think there's even actors in it. You know, doing blackface and stuff. So, oh man, it's uh, probably best uh, left to the archives. Uh, 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 but uh, what is he even talking about? But we're, well, we're talking about uh, Billy Zane and all that, but. This is not the actor no, that you no. have such a soft spot. Well, I mean, you do, but the, the actor you really have, have a real soft spot for is, Treat, shall we say. Is Treat Williams. 
Uh, and I mean, the great thing about being a villain in a superhero uh, movie is you get to chew the scenery. And motherfucker must have been full after every day's <laughs> filming. Here. There is so much scenery going on. Like, and Trent Williams, who traditionally you know is uh, you know plays like the the charming you know quippy kind of a good guy. Yeah. And he just seems to be relishing the chance to play an absolute prick. And it's like, who's the, what's the name of the character from Die Hard? The, the uh, Hans, Booby. Oh, uh, Ellis. Yeah, he's got real sleazy Ellis vibes. Like he's this shyster <laughs> kind of con man. Look, the plot is not important. There's three magical skulls that you got to find to take over the world, <laughs> what the fuck it is. Um, but he just plays that, this, this character with, it just, Fuck it, he would he would sell his own. He's relishing it, yeah. Just it? like he's mean to everyone, like you know, uh, uh, the his femme fatale, Catherine Zeta Jones. No one gets any respect from him. He's only in it for himself, and it's just a joyous, joyous performance to watch. <laughs> I'm a big fan of treats. I mean, it's funny we we were talking about Kurt Russell earlier, and I'd love the sort of the a hierarchy, but you know, you've got your A-listers. If you're talking about people of our vintage, then you. So you're talking about the 80s and 90s. Okay, you've got Mel Gibson and Kevin Costner. Then a little below that, you've got Kurt Russell, maybe Dennis Quaid or something. Yeah. And then below that, you've got these guys who are... Some people know their names, most people know their faces, and you're kind of like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Oh, and, and it, yeah, Treat Wims is one of those guys who's actually top-lined a few movies and been good in them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could, of course, go on for hours, but let's let's devote a whole episode later on to Deep Rising, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny too, isn't it? Because it's almost like Billy Zane and Treat Williams. I mean, I think Treat Williams probably has had a more successful career than Billy Zane in a lot of ways. But there is that similar kind of head-scratching thing of like, geez, both these guys should yeah. be bigger stars. And I don't know why that is. Or maybe they are exactly where they need to be. The fact that he's the lead good guy in this film and treats the lead bad guy, well, maybe it's actually perfectly balanced. I think the, yeah, invariably it's the case that people find their level. Yeah. You know, um, there's been a lot of talk about the movie John Carter recently, which um, is probably one we could have talked about for this because that's a, a flop with a, a big an actor that I like, yeah. Taylor Kitsch, who's the, who's the lead in that. But I was talking about it with a friend of mine and as much as we like him, you know, everyone likes Riggins from Friday Night Lights. It's like, yeah, he kind of sinks it. He's he's giving his all, but he he need a little more time in the oven. Yeah, this John Carter needed Hugh Jackman five years earlier, or right. Chris Hemsworth five years later. Right, but it got Taylor Kitsch at this particular moment in time. Where it's like we're going to make this guy a star. He's the next Brad Pitt. Not quite. Yeah, not quite. But but he's too he's too charismatic for TV. But he's not charismatic enough for movies. I think you'd say the same about John Hamm even. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, they, but Ryan Reynolds was in that territory for a long time as well, remember? Like, they yeah. kept trying Maybe to Maybe you just got to find the right role. Yeah, and then, he, like, he and, and then the, t- the key it. turns. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, oh, Deadpool. Well, okay. And from there, you know, it's off to the race. It's like, well, we'll put him in anything now, and we like him and we're used to him. Um, so should we finish off with our joint <laughs> flop that we love? <laughs> I mean, I don't actually know that technically this was a flop because I don't know what the expectations were for what is essentially a B-movie. But I discovered this in the video store uh, and it was one of my regular go-tos. It is such a, a fun throwaway movie with great yeah. performance starring our very own Treat Williams. It is... Deep rising. <laughs> Stephen Summers, pre mummy Stephen Summers, testing out the kind of uh, visual effects uh, template he'll use uh, later on for the mummy. In, indeed. And uh, a, a, an effect that got a run in Deep Rising actually is built in the credits half digested Billy. <laughs> so you know what you're in for. <laughs> you no, know, if a movie has got half digested Billy, well, yeah. You either know you're in or you're out at that stage. Now, this to me is like, I like this film heaps more than I like The Mummy. I know The Mummy was the more successful film and kickstarted a franchise. But this is such an odd movie. So basically, you've got a, a, a team of mercenaries, hijackers, looking to board an ocean liner to rob all the rich people. Uh, when they get on board, uh, they find that the ship is, is deserted and there is a mysterious tentacled monster that is hunting people down. Or... <laughs> Should I say, is it? They think it's monsters, turns out to be a monster. Uh, Famke Jensen is also on the boat. She's like a cat burglar type. She is a, she is a delightful international jewel thief who's actually not really good at her job. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's just got, it's one of those kind of contained 
movies, um, you know, where it's like, hey, this all happens on a boat or this happens on a bus, where yeah. it's very inventive. But again, it's that nod in the wink to the camera. And maybe this is what Treat Williams does best, is mm. like he is your less serious Harrison Ford. He's the everyman that you can root for, but it's all fun. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. It, it, it's I don't mean this as an insult, or that's going to come come across. Is is your reject shop Harrison Ford? Like, <laughs> that, or, what's that, that line? Going to come across as an insult. I know. What's that like? We've got Harrison Ford at home. Yeah, and that's Street Williams. Yeah, yeah. I want to go to McDonald's. I can't no, believe no. it's not Harrison Ford. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I don't think he was the first choice for this either. I mean, I think they would kind of turn this into a David Duchovny right, vehicle, right, right? While the uh, hot off the X Files or the X Files had just started. It's like, let's get this to Cubney, get into movies. Um, I don't know. I mean, the company's shown that he's got a a bit of a low key sense of humor. I don't think that would work for this. No, did, I think did, did, I think treat nails this. I think everyone across the board treats this because you look at the crew of mercenaries. It's a stacked deck of character characters. Actors, yeah, man. Jason Fleming, Cliff Curtis, yeah, Jaman Hunsu. It's a, led yeah. by the great Wes Studi. Um, uh, the late Aussie actor Trevor Goddard, who oh, sort right. of specialised as thugs, yeah, he was Mortal Kino Kombat. in the Mortal Kombat that's movie. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. You're right. It, it, the 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 sense of humour is a really big part of it because it's such a ridiculous concept. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, I mean, to go back to Kurt Russell, uh, Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, he's very much a so. much more capable hero. He knows what he's doing, but the, just the general mm. disbelief at how things <laughs> unfold. Like he doesn't even really want to be there when the mercenaries. Like he's just the getaway driver, right? Like he doesn't even. Yeah. He doesn't really give a shit. Doesn't want to be there. And as each fucking more weird thing happens, I mean, it's one of the most <laughs> ham-fisted attempts to install like a catchphrase. Uh, which they bring out numerous times, and it even goes into the the, the closing credits. Uh, which and, uh, would you want to give me your best rendition of the catchphrase? Now what? <laughs> <laughs> My rendition not that great. On paper, not that great. No, Treat sells it, which is why he's Treat Williams. Yeah. <laughs> and also, it is really the perfect way to win the movie because I don't know. I don't want to spoil the ending for anyone because I think people should watch Deep Rising. It is on Disney Plus if you uh, have that particular streamer. Uh, it's funny, uh, listening to or interacting with Americans on social media, because uh, all the Marvel shows that were made for Netflix, like Daredevil and The Punisher and Luke Cage, they're all being shifted over to Disney Plus, and everyone's like, oh, wow, now we've got you know swearing and violence on Disney Plus. It's like, we've got Conan the Barbarian on Disney Plus. <laughs> 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 you know, the guardrails are off down here, pal. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if you've got Disney Plus, Deep Rising is on it. Do yourself a favour, give yourself a little treat, one might say, and watch it tonight. Oh, yeah, that's a great <laughs> I had an idea. It's on Disney Plus, and I have Disney yeah. Plus. I've just finished Pam and Tommy, which is fantastic. So this might be. Is it good? I haven't watched oh, it yet. It is incredible. It's really great. I actually, I, I like Matt Gillespie as a director. Uh, he did, obviously, I, Tonya. Um, he's an Australian mm. director, but the real MVP, or the, I mean, they're all great. Sebastian Stan, incredible as Tommy Lee, uh, Lily James. Unrecognizable. That's such unexpected casting, yeah. But she's fantastic. She she nails Pamela Anderson, like the mannerisms, the voice. Like if you close your eyes, it sounds exactly like Pamela Anderson. But the MVP- she, nails, she nails Pamela Anderson more than Tommy Lee. <laughs> the real MVP <laughs> is um, Seth Rogen. Like it is oh, an incredible. And he plays the guy who, who who stole the tape, steals the tape, and and it's but it's it, it's yeah. a kind of it's actually far more poignant. Like it it has the kind of. It feels like it's just going to be this kind of, uh, you know, almost like goofy, you know, true life crime caper thing. But it's there's a lot of depth to it and a lot of layers. And they really do a great job of kind of exploring kind of the, you know, the sexual politics of when something like this gets released. You know, it's Mm. more about... You know, uh, the way Pamela Anderson it became her issue and she was vilified when she was a victim in this whole situation became a punchline really overnight. Yeah. I, I remember seeing in the trailer, and this really stuck with me, that um, yeah, Tommy Lee saying something like, I'm on that tape too. And she said, no, not like me, you're not. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and that's like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, there are actually some quite harrowing scenes of like, you know, they do, where they're trying desperately to kind of get control of the situation, which is mm. bizarrely out of control. And Lily James' performance is so heartbreaking. Like, it makes you really just go, fucking hell. Like, we are, as a gender, <laughs> we're pretty we fucked suck. up. <laughs> we're a pretty fucked yeah. up gender and what we can do to the other gender. Um, but that's amazing. I, I, and I highly recommend But Seth Rogen's performance because he, 
it's there's none of the Seth Roganisms that you that you're used to. Like he genuinely plays a guy who just is like a a kind of a, a well intentioned idiot who okay. sort of who basically <laughs> becomes an agent of chaos. Like he thinks he's doing the right thing, and then it just becomes this this other thing. But I keep I kept sort of. Uh, commenting to Gemma, my wife, watching it, I was like, oh my God, this cast is so fucking good. Like every single person in that series uh, is incredible. But that's done. So I'll definitely be watching. <laughs> I'll definitely be watching Deep Rising. Uh, do you think, <laughs> and this is not a spoiler at all, but do you think Deep Rising in some ways could be in the Lost Universe? You would think so, based on the uh, yeah. based on the final few minutes, wouldn't you? And I mean, it just is crying out for a sequel, yeah, <laughs> or a series, or a reboot. I mean, I would love. I, I mean, wouldn't that be great if you and I had our own studio and infinite funds? If we could give Treat Williams the coronation that Kurt Russell had with Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy, you and I do it with a limited series on Netflix. Treat Williams in <laughs> Deep Rising the series, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, uh, contact those people who made like you know Godzilla and. Kong Skull Island and Godzilla versus Kong is like, hey guys, how about we, uh, you know, fold a bit of deep rising? Oh, that's a great fucking idea. Yeah. Great idea, <laughs> uh, guy. Thank you so much for stepping back into the video store. I uh, always uh, Char- so Charlie, much. you had me at deep rising. <laughs> 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 Thanks so much for having me back, man. It's always uh, always an absolute. I was going to say an absolute treat, but not even I'm that cheesy. An absolute pleasure. Uh, to be talking about these movies with you. And people can check out Four Finger Discount. Where should they go? Um, you can go to fourfingerdiscount.com.au or just go where anywhere where good podcasts are podcasts. And where can people find you online? Oh, at Robert Guy Davis on Twitter, uh, where I'm a little more combative and abrasive. Or you can find me on Facebook at just um, at Robert Guy Davis as well, where I'm a little more mellow. And I'd encourage anyone, any movie lovers, to follow Guy on Twitter because uh, many a times he will throw a flick on and share his musings, and it's always incredibly entertaining and enlightening. Uh, so Thanks a bunch, Charlie. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> follow Guy Davis <laughs> on Twitter. We'll have him back on Fofop, but for now, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Guy Davis.